Hi, this is Leah. And this is Channing. And you've reached Vessel, Art is a Doorway. Welcome to episode 29. Hey, we're so happy to have you with us today on episode 29 of Vessel Art is a Doorway. We have a real treat today. Today we're speaking with Isabel Rojas Williams. Isabel Rojas Williams has such a rich history when it comes to the productions of murals, especially in the Los Angeles area. She was the director of the Mural Conservatory of Los Angeles and is very instrumental when it comes to why the mural and the street art is as rich as it is in LA history. Yeah, we can't wait for you to listen into this episode because you're going to see how Isabel's work has not only just uh, had an effect uh, here in Los Angeles, but really abroad. So let's listen into this episode of Isabel Rojas Williams. Audience, we have such a great guest on the show today. You're really going to enjoy this. Isabel Rojas Williams is with us today, and it is such a pleasure to have you on the show, Isabel. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am honored to be here. Thank you. That's awesome. Yes, audience, you're going to learn a lot about Isabel. Um, We met Isabel. Let's just take it back a second. We met Isabel at a a speech. Well, it was a talk, we could say, right? Um, At Hauser and Worth in downtown Los Angeles about what, two to three years? It was about maybe three years ago. four, Four years ago, maybe. Yeah. About four years ago. Yeah. So you were having a talk with a couple of other artists at that time in the in the in the little courtyard there at Hauser and Worth. And Leah and I, we were just walking by. We just moved into Los Angeles at the time. We were walking by the restaurant and we wanted to check out Hauser and Worth. And we peeked in and we saw you giving this talk. And we fell in love with you. It was like <laughs> it was love at first sight. <laughs> could, 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 could Thank you, you. Could you tell us a little bit about that day? Uh, what was going on? What were you discussing that day, so our audience can know? I'm sure you fell in love with me because I was wearing that beautiful parasol, the white parasol. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a very hot day. And Hauser and Worth had invited me to give a mural talk about uh, the uh, mural surrounding the site where this gallery museum uh, sits. And uh, so many of the murals had been erased. And before Hauser and Worth became Hauser and Worth, I had conversations with a man that it was the the, uh, director there, which is, uh, he's not longer there about preserving those murals, the history of the murals, since my expertise and my focus of research are the murals of LA. And uh, so they promised me that they would, they didn't, they save only some. Um, Now I'm almost all gone, only there are like three left and in the back part of the building. Uh, So the day when I gave the talk about the history of muralism in Los Angeles, beginning from 1930 to, you know, now or to those 14, four years ago, uh, 
I uh, requested to them, to House Run Worth, to invite two of my mirrorless friends who have existing mirrors in the community. So uh, one of her, uh, one of them was uh, Noni Olavisi and uh, Kim West. So they were sitting by my side and I wanted them to be honored because, you know, they were, the mirrors were still there. Uh, as for now, uh, Noni Olavisi is gone and only Kim West is in the back part of the building. So, so that conversation was about that, the history of murals in LA and particularly focusing in the art district in that town. Awesome. We were just talking about how we fell in love with you at Housing Worth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but let's backtrack a little bit. We want to discuss the fact that Isabel is an art historian and curator. Now, tell us a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Um, well, you know, I came to United States in 1973, escaping a brutal dictatorship that lasted in Chile for 17 years. So in reality, I had to get out of the country. I was involved uh, with, uh, inspired by an art collective called uh, Brigada Ramona Parra, which it was a collective that dedicated itself to make murals throughout Chile regarding to peace, social justice, equity, and human rights. So a lot of the people from my time, my generation, as a matter of fact, 200,000 Chileans escaped Chile at the time, and many of my friends got killed uh, or tortured. Uh, so I moved here, arrived here, in Highland Park. And uh, at the time uh, there was uh, uh, this movement here, you know, the civil rights movement and, you know, the civil rights uh, uh, affecting the Chicano community, Chicano Latino community and the black community. So it was a time of the Black Panthers and the Chicanos were the two powerful forces fighting for social justice and human rights in our country and our city. And uh, so uh, my beginnings are in East Los Angeles, that's where I was working. So I saw how the muralists that are now famous uh, were beginning to paint issues of identity and the issues that I mentioned uh, before uh, to bring justice to our communities. So, um, neighborhoods, parks, and, and walls were covered with incredible murals, bringing attention to what we could not see on TV or the newspapers. Nobody spoke on TV or the newspapers about uh, police oppression, for example, or the people who were, uh, you know, uh, living in worlds where discrimination was blatant. And like, for example, in the schools in East Los Angeles, uh, Ball Heights, which caused the walkouts, the student walkouts that be, happened in 1968, but the issues haven't solved by the time I had arrived. So when I arrived in East Los Angeles to work, uh, uh, I live in Highland Park, but I work in East Los Angeles, I realized that the very issues I was escaping from were happening right here at the very same time and similar communities, issues were the same. 
So, and I was, I felt very long, alone, very, you know, I could not go back to Chile for five years as an immigrant that arrived here without uh, papers. So long, uh, five long years went by before I was able to see my family again. And during those years, you know, I was working many jobs. I think I have four jobs. Work, got up at five in the morning and went to bed at one in the morning because in between I was doing different type of jobs and going to school to learn English and uh, do homework and do all the things that we do to survive as immigrants. And uh, so I was very alone. I didn't know anybody, didn't know the language. I didn't like the food. I don't know how I ended up in the United States because I applied for visa in 14 different countries. And this country was the first one that took me. And, uh, you know, I didn't have friends. It was, I was 22. And when I saw those murals being painted, I realized that I was not alone any longer. I saw my face on those walls. And that triggered something in me that continued until today, uh, where I realized that the, the power of muralism, the powers that artists own when they go out and paint those walls, when they bring issues that affect all of us. And that was happening with the uh, photorealistic murals and all those messages move forward to the time when my son became a teenager. As any teenager, he had the issues, first generation born here from Chilean parents. Uh, um, I was like, uh, I later divorced my ex-Chilean husband. And my, my son had many issues of uh, identity and I had no idea, you know, I learned that when he was older. Uh, but he began painting pieces, uh, graffiti pieces in East Los Angeles on walls in the alleys and all that. I didn't know until one day, you know, I found out and I was terrified because I had no understanding of what graffiti was. I was scared because at the time, and by some people's ignorance today too, graffiti was related to um, uh, like gangs and like vandalism, and I'm talking about graffiti art, I'm not talking about tagging, which to me tagging, it is vandalism when it's happening in pro private property. But graffiti art, through my son's eyes, I learned to love. And in order for me to keep that connection open with my son in his difficult uh, rebel years, I decided to become an art historian to keep that connection open. And uh, my son uh, would go, I'm talking when he was 12, 13, I would take him to the yards, to the graffiti yards, to paint the pieces. And the agreement between two of us was that I would stay hidden in a corner so that his friends wouldn't see me. And <laughs> uh, to, to, so he could do what he was doing. And, and, you know, and then I did, and I was happy because I wanted, I didn't want him to go to jail, number one, which was easily happening in LA at the time. Uh, but also uh, I learned so much because I, he would tell me, I would drive him around and he would explain to me, uh, not only the graffiti art, but the murals. So I saw the connection between the muralists uh, of the 60s, 70s to their counterparts 
today world where the issues are the same. Perhaps the medium is different. Perhaps the depictions are different. Now, as we know, uh, things are more digital or more stencils or more, you know, wheat paste. Uh, and also, of course, uh, paint and spray cans and all that. So I learned all that through my son's eyes and I fell madly in love with the city, a city that I didn't care for at the beginning. I learned to love totally in love, my love for the city. And every little corner, we went everywhere, you know, South LA, throughout Northeast Los Angeles, East Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, Santa Monica, Venice, everywhere. And as it ended up, I had documented murals in France, in Argentina, in Chile, and throughout the city, San Francisco, Oakland, you know, so to me, it's a, it's a love story with public art. So that's a little bit on a nutshell what and who I am. So what was your first, that's really beautiful. I really love how you, first of all, the story of it. I didn't, of course, I didn't know all these things. So that's really fascinating to me. Now, what was your first memory of art? Was it in Chile? Uh, yes, my first uh, memories of art are related to Chile. I come from a very regular middle class, I would say lower middle class family. Uh, things have changed now. They are better off that way, but my beginnings are very humble. I can, at the, at the beginning, I would say from a very poor family, and then we had, family had been evolved thanks to education. And... Uh, so I come from a family, I have six, we are six siblings. And uh, in my house, my home, my mother always inspired us to read. We were all readers. And uh, I used to make my own clothes uh, out of uh, financial need. And because I didn't like to look like others, you know, I didn't like all that stuff, you know, that is all the same. I even used to make my own shoes because I didn't wear leather in those days. So uh, I made, uh, and we need a lot. And I'm talking about all the, the different uh, art expressions, you know, uh, the music, we love music. We were poor uh, in money, but rich in, in culture and art. We love all that. Uh, but what it really marked me as uh, I was 17 and at the time um, in Chile, because Chile is at the end of the world, it's a little thin, long country uh, that didn't have access to anything. Uh, on one side is the Pacific Ocean and in the other side you have the huge peaks of the Andes, one of the highest peaks, mountain peaks in the world. So we were very isolated, like an island in this stretch, very thin, narrow country. So nothing and nobody would go there. Very homogeneous uh, country, not any longer. And thanks God for that. And uh, so the expressionists were brought for the first time to Chile, 50 of the expressionists. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I did have my little savings and I spent all my savings in buying myself that ticket to go and see that exhibition that opened up my eyes. And I had to say that standing in front of the old masters, I cry. I, I cry today too when I see art, mm -hmm. you know, like that, that, that inspired me. But that was my real, my first real experience in seeing 
and I shouldn't say real art because to me, real art is any art, but I'm talking about what you learn, you know, in school from the books and which is also not necessarily the best at times, you know, books don't tell us what the reality is. And I love to decide myself, but in those days, that was my most incredible experience uh, related to seeing art. That's so good. Yeah, that is, that's really beautiful. And I love the way that you talked about how beautiful the country of Chile is and how it was related to like your experience with art. In fact, we, we actually had a chance to visit Chile like a couple of years ago. In fact, we were going to show you like a couple of videos from our experience. Yeah. Great. Here's the first one. It was, we were in Santiago and it was the, and there were these people, all this, we were actually just sitting and eating and all of a sudden it just turned into like a swing dance party. That's, that's what happened there all the time. You can hear opera, violin playing, people dancing to all different type of dances from all over the world. And the, the public art there is really amazing. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know if, you, you know, like uh, sometimes I like it, sometimes I, sometimes I don't, but Chileans are more influenced by the Europeans than they are by the Americans. So there is this, uh, and Europeans, so meaning all the different cultures. So it's a wider, you know, understanding of what art is about. So mm. they're very different that way. I'm so happy you saw that. And then, <laughs> and then another thing that we did too was uh, there was a friend of ours and she got, um, she and her family got some of their friends together and um, we rented a van and they, they took us to this park and it was just amazing. We ended up driving, I think almost like four hours. We got up really early in the morning and it went from streets to like gravel to like dirt roads. And then um, we'll show you what happened once we got close to our destination (laughs) but uh wow (laughs) this is our van yeah I see the van so it was beautiful because it was it we're here and used to the states where like when you go to certain parts like I don't know there everything seems so untouched and we saw like the horses, like wild horses running around. We were actually going to like some hard, um, some hot springs and there was snow melting off of the caps of the mountains that created this wow. stream. And wow. uh, this- Do you remember what town was? Was it San Jose de Maipo? Um, I have it, I have it saved. I have to, let me, let me see if I can find it right quick. But you want to tell the story with what happened here. So yeah. audience, you're going to hear like water rushing and I see um, water yes <laughs> and then our you'll see our our van it was a really nice van it was a Mercedes van but um I'll let Channing explain what happened yeah so unfortunately this fella a super macho guy if you see in the background there there's a car that's stuck uh, yes, a little red, red car, car that was stuck yeah. he was stuck yeah. in there this guy Our driver driver sees the guy stuck and he feels as though this van can get through the same thing. So this is what happens. And your door was open? (laughs) We had to get out. We we got stuck while we were all in there. We had had all of our little older, you know, like older aunties and grandmas with us. I mean, 
it was, <laughs> it was that's so crazy but that happens here often because guys always think oh he can make it but i can't right <laughs> <laughs> but we had such a good time we, we had such a good yeah. time and one final thing we're going to show uh isabel audience is a really beautiful picture um that we had the place is um by the way isabel the place is called park Parque, I'm going to mess it up. Parque Valle de Yeso. Valle de Yeso. So yeah. you, oh, I see. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and how the landscape changes so rapidly when you leave Santiago, you know, it goes like from a very urban city to, you know, green and nothing. So, yeah. 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 But we were going to these hot springs. We'll show you a picture. And the audience will have these videos on. Great. In the show's notes, we'll link it to our blog. But it was beautiful oh. once we got there. Yeah. And that's this a friend of ours. Yes. This is, is this south of Santiago or north of Santiago? I've never been. You know, I'm going to, I'll, I'll look it up. Because I did. we just got in the van and we just rode with them. <laughs> we were like, you guys take us where, you know. So we were like, wherever you guys take us, that's where we're going to go. And so and he was um, able to take, he was able to remove the van from the water and keep uh, the drive, right? Oh, no. And of course, there's like no phone service out there. I don't know wow. how. <laughs> there was like a little car, but it had four wheel drive that was able to like, and the guy, he's, if like you said, it must be something that happens often because he hooked that van up to his little, little, um, tiny little wow. sports utility vehicle, and they were able to push that van out of the water but the engine oh he goodness. flooded the engine the engine was dead so some i don't know how they got in contact with somebody but they bought another smaller van and we were just sitting all on top of each other for four hours back to santiago but we had a, such and, a good time that that, that yeah. was a little of the adventure. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have the adventure like that you haven't traveled you know yeah. <laughs> so true so true and you know but but we just want to give our love because we just enjoyed Santiago. I think they call it Sanhattan. Yeah, they were joking. They were like, yeah, oh, this place, Sanhattan. Yeah. Yeah, that's where all the Starbucks and the big tall buildings are in the little restaurants, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's quite different than when I left, you know? I mean, these 48 years have made a difference in the looks of the city. How, how about if we get back to beautiful Isabel sounds- here? <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. So how did the mural ordinance come about? And uh, tell us a little bit about what you've done as, as it was adjusted, the mural or- ordinance. Um, in 2002, the uh, sign companies, the advertising companies, they sued the city to have the same rights to occupy walls as the muralists had at the time. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, uh, and not only that, but the, Paragraph defining uh, murals and signs was in the fir- in the same paragraph. They put them together. So we, you know, I along with hundreds of muralists and art advocates and the community at large, we began uh, fighting for the rights of murals and muralists have to have their own definition and to have the right to the walls because we didn't want the city to be polluted with signs all over. So we began this struggle 
mostly in 2008, you know, uh, on until 2013. Uh, all these people, this community, well, in 2008, the city decided that in 2002, decided decided that they wanted to uh, have a mirror moratorium because the two parts were fighting with each other. So to avoid travel, the city decided, okay, we're gonna have a mirror moratorium, which I thought it was ridiculous because to me it was, you know, freedom of speech. How can you limit freedom of speech? So this from 2002 to 2013, we were struggling um, talking to the politicians at City Hall. I personally went from 2008 to 2013, working with two mayors, Mayor Villaragosa and then Garcetti, who signed the mirror ordinance on September 6, 2013. Uh, but it was a lot of uh, work in every way, you know, uh, for social justice and, uh, you know, respecting our rights and respecting freedom of speech and working with the 15 council members. And we had meetings like every other day. And we would walk there with uh, hundreds of people. I would, I just took the voice of the voiceless to the podium and explain it to these council members why it was so important. And you can imagine at the beginning when I began, I'm, as you know, short and I have a very heavy Chilean accent. And so I would mm -hmm. stand in that podium and the council members, which is not unusual, they're in their cell phones, they're turning their heads, talking to their aides, or they are distracted with what they probably think is a more important issue. Uh, so I would sit mm -hmm. there, stand there, and they weren't listening to me. So thanks to the graffiti artist in this particular case, Saber, uh, he helped uh, with his uh, sister-in-law to gather 6,000 signatures that they were put on a print book. And when we came to the podium, I remember taking this huge document uh, with the 6,000 signatures and I just uh, dropped it on the podium and they got all scared and they say, what? And then I told them, I said, I'm a very short woman with a very chilling mm -hmm. accent, but I have something very important to tell you. I said, you know, we need to give back the freedom of speech to our mural list. This city has been the capital, uh, the mural capital of the world since the 1980s. And a lot of the money that comes to the city has to do with the art that the public artists do on the walls. We have so many tourists coming here uh, just to look at the murals, you know, and, and so we explained to them, I, and we took turns. I did a lot of the talking because at the time I was the executive director of the Mural Conservancy of Los Angeles. So my advocacy was about restoring documenting and creating new murals to preserve and maintain the history of muralism in our city. So, you know, like after five long years, finally they listened to us and we began writing the mural ordinance along with the district attorney and all the people who were the experts in writing these ordinances. And uh, finally on September 6, 2013, 
uh, Mayor Garcetti signed that mirror ordinance and freedom of speech was returned to the artist. However, from that day, the very days, like a week after, the first people that apply for uh, uh, having the murals uh, uh, on the walls, they got the permit, you know, part of the ordinance says that you have to have permits in order to, to be part of the list of the, the, that they keep of murals in LA. The history of murals, the Department of Culture Affairs keeps a list of all the stock of murals in LA. And uh, the first people that applied, they really made signs. And so the community was completely uh, polarized and they didn't know what to do because they were advertising. I mean, there were logos of companies there. And so the mayor, uh, the community was split 50-50. And, and so that's something that we all had thought about very carefully as the years went by, but those two murals were erased. And uh, there were other issues with the mural ordinance there. It's not perfect. We did it at the time because we needed to stop the mural moratorium. But there were certain issues in the mural ordinance besides that I think now you had to pay $100. At the time it was $60. It was that uh, their, uh, the artist, the muralist has to get together with the building owner, get permission in front of a notary to be able to do whatever the artist is gonna do on the wall. You have to have a meeting with the community to explain. Nobody can uh, tell you not to do what you're painting and that's your freedom, but you cannot obviously do religious discrimination or pornographic issues on walls which is common sense. But also when the mural is finished, you have to get together with the building owner again, and you have to sign uh, what they call the covenant, where the building owners is forced to take care of that mural for two years. And so there are other issues too, the timing that it takes from the time that the murals begin painting until ends, the process of the mural ordinance, and all the issues that come because uh, there, the, the, what it used to happen in the 80s, which I love because I'm a very free-spirited person, it was that you could go out and paint a mural, you know? You found a wall, and sometimes you didn't have to ask permission because the wall was, uh, didn't belong to anyone, it was somewhere, you know, and you just painted a mural. It was the way that muralists expressed themselves. Mm -hmm. So now there's so much, you know, red tape that in many ways, the spontaneity of painting the mural has been taken away from the artist. Uh, mm. At the same time, I think it's important, the mural ordinance, because if you register your mural, the Department of Cultural Affairs uh, gives you uh, 450 square feet of uh, protection, the protection that uh, goes on top of the mural and also you become part of that list. So it brings attention to the artist. You know, you're part of a list that is constantly reviewed for future projects. And any mural that was painted before September, 2013, it was uh, considered vintage mural. So it's part of, uh, uh, you know, the city is called the Godfather Inn, you know, for anything that happens to the mural. If it gets stuck, the city is supposed to go and clean it up 
but that also is not perfect. So that in a way is what happened with the mirror ordinance. And, uh, you know, nowadays things are different in many ways. I see that it also lended itself. It, it, it became like the wow, wow west or a mirror renaissance, depending on where you look at it from. Wow. And I see a, a lot of uh, uh, decorative murals that have no message. And I see murals that are amazing, that are either spray painted or, you know, with the stencils or digital or, you know, uh, wheat paste. So we have all these different mediums. So we have become very rich in murals. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. There are so many murals. It's like, it's incredible. So it brings a lot of diversity and richness, cultural richness to our city. And we get to get a lot of tourists that bring a lot of money to our city because of those murals. Mm, that's wonderful. There's so much, so, so much interesting <laughs> that you talked about. One of the things, even just going back to, like you said, some of the first people that after that ordinance was passed that got permission, decided to put up their logo and this kind of, this is really interesting to me. I feel like it's kind of sad that even if you, the, the thing is that I've been doing, I feel like there's a lot, a big body of research that add, if, if, if a company actually puts up real art, it's like, it does more even for their business by way of like side effects than if they put up their logo, you know? And it's just, it's just interesting that I feel like it's kind of sad <laughs> that they they couldn't necessarily uh, see that. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I know when you mentioned that you you helped with the writing of the ordinance, what were some of the distinctions like how how what were some of the things that you would explain as a distinction of the difference between a real sign and a mural? Yeah, a sign and a mural or an ad versus a mural. How can uh, uh, the mural be more enriching than an ad to a community? It's a very simple definition that I had, uh, you know, also study and realize what's the big difference. And it's so simple. You can write it in one sentence. Uh, sign sells a product while a mural tells the history of a community and its people. And that's the basic difference, right? right. And I also, I also would like to touch on this because as I said a little earlier, I have thought about carefully about how the murals get done and how little money we have for art. As you know, there's hardly any money. Artists are always struggling, you know, this, this uh, struggling artist is, is, a, is a true statement. Uh, it's not easy to be an artist in the city. Uh, unlike places like Italy, where art is so well supported by the, by the government. So I had gone back to the past and realized that, for example, in Italy, the Medicis were the, the ones that supported the artists. They adapted the artists from the time they were very young and they sent them to 
the DAP art schools and they dedicated 24 seven hours of their life every day to learn how to improve their skill. The, the artist segment of the population was highly respected, but they were supported by uh, these people that uh, philanthropists that pay for it. But of course they had political and religious connotations. We move back to today. If we don't make friends with the people who hold the money or try to figure out how we do enrich our city with public art, the artists obviously are not gonna have the money. Who are the ones who are gonna pay for this? Um, my thinking is that why can't we have all the people, the 1% or the people who made a lot of money during the pandemic to support our community artists, to support our artists to create public art, uh, you know, to enrich the, the city in that way. And it's happening. Uh, a lot of people like the murals on the freeway that I help uh, uh, raise money to uh, restore those murals which unfortunately are heavily tagged again. But we restore all those murals from 2011 to 2014, 15. And the, the murals were created at the beginning for the Olympics, 1984 Olympics. So the murals were commissioned by the Olympics and they were partially paid by a bank. So it didn't happen because the artists put out their money. The artists put out their skills to make these murals. So, uh, you know, we need to have that dialogue between the people that hold the money and the artists that produce the art that enrich our city. If we were to make that possible in a beautiful way, so many issues would be solved regarding to the arts in the city and in the country because, you know, like in Philadelphia, for example, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the murals in Philadelphia, but they are supported by the state. And here we don't have that support. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep this struggle and this fight with the people in charge to give us more money so we can not only preserve, restore, but also create more uh, public art. Because, you know, if we keep on erasing murals, the history of the murals are, is going to be gone and there's gonna be nothing. And I also need to mention another thing for the people that don't know, there is a 1% that public developers or commercial developers need to donate for the arts. But we need to keep an eye on that because we don't want to have like in many cases happen, like a concrete ball in front of the building and they say that's the 1%. Well, no, you know, we need something more creative, more, you know, a real, uh, commission artists to create something that we're gonna be, you know, happy to have there that the visitors are gonna to want to go there and do. And the last thing regarding to that is that just the, uh, the um, uh, city supervisors just approved a law that allows murals to be uh, for the uh, um, uh, private uh, developers to pay also a 1% to go to commission public art. This just happened three weeks ago. So I'm so delighted about that. That is so important because it's not only commercial developers but also private developers giving that percent to commission artists to create public art. Super important. 
That's awesome. You know, it, it, hearing your love and your passion for uh, for murals is amazing. And no doubt you're playing your individual part when it comes to history. As a matter of fact, I think you're on one of the buildings in downtown L.A. <laughs> is that correct? I, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, yes, and I'm so happy about it. And, you know, I uh, was going to talk to you about my two favorite projects, uh, mirror projects that I have been involved in. And that's one of my favorites. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that? <laughs> because well, I think... I'm gonna yes, you want me to talk to the two that my favorites or you want me to go directly into the into the my my the one at the... <laughs> At the, at the building in downtown. Well, right before you go there, just to back up some of the things that you're talking about, it may, it reminded me of a um, book. I'll, I'll, we'll have the link to the book in the show's notes as well. Um, but it was interesting um, uh, that, sorry, I have it on my, I just pulled it up on my phone as you were talking, but the, the example that was given was of millennium, Chicago's Millennial Park. And the interesting thing a bit about the Millennial Park in Chicago is that it was private, I think it was privately funded. It wasn't with the 1% model. And it was interesting. Um, I'm trying to find the exact figures here, but um, I think that they way undervalued, like they kind of had to fight a little bit to be able to put the millennial park up there. And they had, they threw out a figure and I think it was in the billions annually that they thought that the, the park would, would, would bring in and it to, and then by the time this, I think this is in 2014, the annual estimated gross sales from visitor spending attributed to Millennial Park was 1.2 trillion. So it way blasted out whatever predictions they thought that they were, you know, some of the, the people who were kind of doubting the success of it. Like, why are you putting this public art up here? Like, what's, you know, how is this going to uh, help the community? And it completely like blew out of the box, like whatever estimate estimates they had. And so it kind of really goes back to like what you were saying. All of, I feel that's kind of how I feel. I feel like as you're talking and the things that we've seen and as, as studies have shown too, the when you put art, things that are just really good for the sense of well-being for the public, it automatically as a side of threat brings in, it brings, it brings the economy up of that area. It also, in addition to bringing up, it helps all around the, in, in addition to the sense of well-being, fact that like even, cause sometimes I think artists kind of get a little bit nervous about talking about money and things like that. But the reason why that, that is just a, a metric to really help people understand that those that are coming in, that the the restaurants that are benefiting around there, the jobs that are being created. And that's kind of like some of the things that we'll, we were talking about with that building downtown with Apple, talking to some of the people there, they mentioned how as soon as they put that up, the businesses within that area automatically started making more, more money, which means more jobs and um, the place is cleaner, the, the, the crime is less, all of these benefits. And to not feel like you need to compensate the artists, the people who are actually doing that, I just don't understand. You know, it's not, it's not like you're losing, it's an investment. It's an investment into the community. 
Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. And I just wanted to add to what you said that I also see hope. Uh, I just uh, about at the beginning of this year, uh, many people, many people involved in grants and uh, culture organizations receive a lot of money from the Mellon Foundation. Uh, for example, you know, the people, the, the Logan Park in San Diego, the Chicano Park, if you're not familiar with it, I would, you know, suggest to whoever is listening to research it. And they is uh, Chicano murals from the 70s on. And so they got uh, $5 million uh, to restore the murals. And they've been always super active about what they do in there. They get a lot of visitors. It's, it's like the history, the Chicano history is written in those murals from the 70s to the present times. At the same time, uh, Judy Vaca, who founded Spark in 1976, also got a $5 million. Uh, uh, Judy Vaca, who founded Spark in 1976, uh, was granted this $5 million uh, Mellon grant. Uh, she, she and 400 young people at risk and many well-known uh, muralists painted the history of from the beginning of civilization uh, to the 1950s on one side of the riverbed. So with this money, Spark is gonna be able to uh, create uh, on the opposite wall from the 50s to today, including everything that has happened to our history, which I think is so important. That's like an open book to read our history. And they're also gonna create a viewing bridge between the two walls so you can stand and see it there. Uh, it's in North Hollywood, it's an important part of mural history. Another thing that the mural lovers need to see. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. Now, backing up a little bit, you were talking about two of some of your favorite projects. <clears throat> Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? What are some uh, of your favorite projects that you've uh, actually been involved with? Uh, well, the first uh, mural project that I was involved with, I have been involved in in numerous number of projects, not only to restore, but to create, you know, like I wouldn't have time to tell you today how many, or writing about them or documenting them, but the two ones that really uh, spoke to my heart uh, and marked me in a way that I didn't realize at the time they were happening is that the, the first one happened in 2011 um, uh, when, uh, I got involved when I was executive director of the Mira, director of the Mira Conservancy of Los Angeles. We're raising funds to restore the murals at the Strada Courts. Strada Courts is in Highland Park. I'm sorry, in Ball Heights, and uh, it is a site. It's the birth of the Chicano mural movement. That's where a lot of our muralists that became very well known painted as kids. Many of the artists live in that community, it's a housing project, and they live in this place that had no trees, the people, very poor people, and they didn't have cars. So they painted what they didn't have on those walls. They painted forests, they painted animals, they painted the ocean. Many of them had never seen the ocean, even though, you know, Ball Heights is only 30 minutes from Santa Monica. So 
if you go and visit this place in between 1972, 73 and 1980s, there were 92 murals painted there. So when I became the, the mural, um, uh, the executive director of the Mural Conservancy, that really touched my heart because I saw some of those murals being painted and not only that, but it took me back to Chile to that people, the collective, the art collective, the BRP or the Brigada Ramona Parra that wrote on those walls in Chile, issues of peace, social justice, human rights and equality. Well, that's exactly what the artists, the Chicano artists wrote on the walls of the uh, Strata Courts housing project. So to me, it was something that I needed to do. I needed to get involved with that. And we began while I was there, restoring some of those murals. So that, as I say, took me back to my beginnings. And then the second project that I would like to talk about is not that it's second in place, but it's my number two because it happened recently. Uh, which is uh, the, the Apple Creative Culture Heroes of LA, uh, the portraits at the uh, beautiful tower building in downtown LA. Uh, it was uh, very emotional for me because first of all, I didn't know Leah when she approached me or when Apple approached me, I wasn't very sure what was happening. But to me, what spoke to my heart and make me uh, make the decision of saying yes to this, it was that you two didn't know me, Leah didn't know me. She understood from my talking to an audience of unknown people of how I felt about the history of muralism in LA, uh, how important it was to, to bring attention to the, to the in quotation mark heroes or icons of our community, those unsung heroes, because I had worked for four decades to preserve the history of murals in LA, to help create murals in LA, to write about that, to document that, to bring attention to the artists that many cases are people who nobody knows about. So that Leah took that in that moment, in that one and a half hour understood my passion, it was super moving to me. And so I felt that I, it, it was important that my voice was here along with those 14 other people sitting next to me, some of those heroes and some heroes in many cases, uh, I saw some, two of my artist friends created art there too, besides Leah. And I love that they talk about the essential workers because we were going through the pandemic and doctors, nurses, or, or, or just a father or an artist producing art that help us cope with such important things that we were going through. And it, it was super important to me in my heart. Uh, plus my passion for uh, arts. And I was super impressed with the, how incredibly, incredibly creative these artists became making digital art to be on that gorgeous wall. I, I had to tell you, I've been documenting that wall without knowing what was happening. I had no idea. I had been taking pictures. Everybody I drove by 8th and uh, Figueroa, I mean, I took, or Broadway, Broadway and 8th, 
I took photos of the building. I love those niches. I love the light. I love, and I had visited those old theaters very often because I was part of uh, bringing back Broadway uh, when that, uh, the revival of Broadway, when that project was happening in downtown LA. So seeing me there, I'm separating myself from that beautiful portrait that this wonderful artist did of me because she made me very beautiful. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that I saw those flowers and all that that she painted on my face. What I have inside my soul, that's me. I saw my eyes, my dreams are in those eyes. So perhaps I'm not beautiful as that likeness of me on that wall, but I do know regarding to public art that I am that beautiful person from my heart, my soul and my brain. I have given 40 years to this history of murals. So I hope that when the people, that the, the passers-by, and particularly the people that know me, that see my face, it's a reminder to them that we need to keep the history of murals alive, that we need to keep on restoring, documenting and creating. And we also need to have respect for all those artists that have made all this possible. So I'm very grateful, super grateful and moved and humble by the opportunity of being on that wall with such an incredible group of people. So I thank you for that. No, I where I'm I'm moved by you and all that you have done, you know, like what you have done, like that come, that's not just a day-to-day, -day, a person who's just doing what they do to get paid <laughs> hourly or just to to that was that was more than a job that came from like you know, the goodness and the, the love that you have for people and the, you know, the empathy and, you know, it's just something very special. And the fact that so many people from all over the world come and can can see the, the murals benefit from the, the history and the culture, so many artists, and they, you know, we have to talk about you. <laughs> we have to talk about those like you that have also been able to open up to make that happen. So everyone benefits. And that's the thing too, with public artists, like so many people benefit, but they don't realize, they don't realize that that's why they benefit from it. You know, they may see a wall and they're like, take a picture or a selfie in front of it and post it. Um, but, you know, we, we just all benefit from the conversation from each other, from, you know, knowing the history and sharing it. And hopefully, you know, by doing that, we can come to understand and care, care for each other a lot better in our communities. But we could talk to you for hours. We could talk to you <laughs> for hours, but we know, we know you're a busy woman and we so appreciate that you took time to talk to us and tell us a little bit about the important history. And then hopefully the, the, the hope is, is that we can all take this information and use it in the future for good. But tell us what, what are some of the projects that you have coming up and where can people find you? Well, people can find me. Uh, I'm very active in social media. Uh, so they can find me under my name, Isabel Rojas Williams on Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram. But I want to talk to you about what at this moment I'm uh, focusing on, which is um, I am, uh, I was asked by 
this wonderful woman uh, uh, to be the co-chair of the uh, arts and culture uh, for Jessica Lal's mayoral campaign. Uh, she is running for mayor. As you know, we have to vote for that in 2022. Uh, but it is important to me, I think we're very ready to have a female mayor in the city. Uh, this woman is, besides being very, very brilliant, she has run super important organizations in the city. She's 37 years old. And I've seen her in action. I had a working project with her uh, when she used to run South Park. And then, you know, she's uh, incredible. Uh, her ideas, her platform for becoming a mayor regarding to inclusivity. She's biracial. She uh, uh, is an uh, incredible professional. Uh, she went to USC there. I mean, you know, like I went to Cal State. I'm not a USC person, but <laughs> I have a respect for all the people that came from there and what they do. But I think uh, my experience during the pandemic, I saw how all the women that are running the world did the best for solving world problems during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I see, I, I decided to support her. I was asked by three different uh, people who are running uh, to join their campaigns, but I felt that Jessica Lau was the right one uh, for me to support because she asked me specifically to help with the arts and culture and that's what I do. So I figure, and you know, I think that empowering female, and empower, empowering the younger generation is what I want to do. I um, would like to see people, younger people doing incredible things. And this is the time and I'm ready for that. And so that's my project. That's my my next thing that I'm doing. Actually, I'm already working on that. So, yes. Wow, well, and we'll also have uh, pictures of uh, some of the beautiful things that uh, uh, Isabel has been involved with, uh, like for instance, the Apple Store and the uh, the mural that uh, that Leah was created. Uh, Leah, she's being modest over here, but we're gonna uh, we're gonna feature that as well. Isabel, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Isabel has such a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, especially when it comes to public art. I definitely could have sat there and like picked her brain for hours. Yeah, you know, seeing her background and how she came into an appreciation of mural art from being inspired by even her son was so fascinating. That was something that I didn't even know about her. It seems like, you know, every time you speak to her, it's like something new. Uh, gets found right right and then i really loved how she described when she saw some of the murals in los angeles after having left chile how it made her feel like she saw her face reflected in her history reflected in the the those murals that she saw and how that was kind of the thing that made her feel like this was home for her. And also really enjoyed when Isabel talked about the way Philadelphia does their mural arts program. In fact, it reminded me of the interview that we did with Jane Golden of the mural arts program in Philadelphia. You guys, 
if you haven't listened to that interview, you have to go and check it out. Like Jane Golden is such a fascinating woman. All the work that they do there, all the interesting projects that they have as it relates to even the rehabilitation of people that used to be criminals and how the program of their public arts program has had tremendous success with that. They even have studies from Yale, all on the muralarts.org website. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing. And just pairing that along with this interview and discussion we've had with Isabel is just extremely insightful as to the benefits of art. And the book that I was referring to when I was talking about the statistics for the Millennial Park in Chicago was a book written by Lynn Bassa called The Artist's Guide to Public Art. And she has in there really amazing statistics, not just about Chicago, but in general. Um, And if you're an artist listening in, she has all kinds of amazing suggestions on how to find commissions and um, win them. So I'll have that linked in the show's notes. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. After the show and the recording, we got a chance to talk to Isabel a little bit more. And she were brought to our attention that a lot of those kids that were hanging out with her son doing the graffiti arts, they actually grew up to become really well-established artists. Uh, for instance, uh, her son, he ended up getting a MFA at the California College of the Arts in San Francisco. And later on, he became the chair of the Oakland School of Arts there in Oakland, California. So I, I just found that really phenomenal. Yeah, and if you get a chance, you can see some of the links that we're talking about in the show's notes. And if you'd like to find out more about the things that we're doing, you can find us at CLSS.studio. That's class without an A. Studio. And if you'd like to find out some of the work that we're engaged in, you can find Leah at Leah Smithson Art on Instagram and myself at Just Glaze Channing. And we want to thank you as an audience for listening into this episode because we know there's countless things that you could be doing with your time. But once again, you're here with us and we appreciate that. Thank you for listening in to Vessel Art as a Doorway. 